This is Michael L. Haley, retired Master Sergeant, U.S. Army Reserves, author of Dead 25, A Soldier's Story. I'm going to continue reading the first chapter of the book in the second episode of this podcast series. Before I begin, I want to tell listeners about another podcast series produced by an associate author, Michael Enicloud. Michael's podcast series, Antediluvian Revelations, a poetic retelling of the Book of Enoch, the Prophet, is a free podcast reading of his original poetic work based on the Book of Enoch. The story about how extraterrestrials abducted the first human in the history of mankind is in this poetic retelling of Enoch's ancient testimonial about the experience. The exact time of Enoch's abduction experience is not really known, but he was Noah's great-grandfather. Yes, I'm talking about the Noah who built the ark and saved the animals before the great deluge. Who told Noah to build the ark? It was not God, it was Enoch. Listen to Antediluvian Revelations, a poetic retelling of the book of Enoch, the prophet, to learn more about the eternal truth not found in the heretical Catholic version of the Bible. Open your ears and eyes to the truth as Enoch's story unravels the lies of heretical Jews and pagan Romans who made up the religion they call Catholicism and editorialized the message of Jesus in the cursed text they call the Holy Bible. The eternal truth is that Jesus Christ was not God, the Son of God, nor was he born of a virgin. Jesus was the Messiah. God's messenger of repentance and the hope of everlasting life, and he was completely human, the same as Enoch and Noah. Catholicism is a lie, and it is the religion of the beast who has risen to power and will lead the world to a nuclear apocalypse. Okay, let's get on with the reading of the first chapter in Debt 25. I previously left off in the middle of page 8. Okay, no problem. He sauntered off, carrying his bag of rags and woodland camouflage body armor. I had already stowed my gear on a truck at the motor pool where the convoy formed up later. It was the first place we went when our convoy from the Alamo stopped in front of it to drop us off. I went into the PX now that the specialist was no longer standing guard out front as if it were his job. I bought two bags of potato chips. One was barbecue flavor and the other was sour cream and onion. I figured that if Yasin did not like the sour cream flavored ones, I wanted to eat them. They were my favorite. The oddest flavor of potato chips I have ever eaten in my life was crab flavor. I bought a bag of them as a snack while passing through the airport in Domodedova about a year later. Back outside the PX, I located Yassin, who seemed to be fine, having been a free man among free men for 30 minutes in his lifetime. He was not my slave. He was my co-worker. I was Batman, and he was my Robin. Unknown to me at that time, we were going to become a crime-fighting duo in Gardez, or maybe we were just the criminals. We strolled over to the motor pool where the convoy was about to start lining up. I thought I was going to be a passenger as usual. However, the convoy commander came to me and explained that they were short a few personnel on this return trip. Sergeant, can I count on you to take the turret and trail vehicle? I did not know this at the time, but the trail vehicle was notorious for being the one to take the most hits on the trip between Gardez's Camp Lightning and Kabul's Camp Phoenix. Yes, sir, no problem. I think I might be bored silly for that distance just sitting in the back seat with the problem solved. The captain called his briefing to order and laid out the plan for movement. I was being set up, but I had no idea 
that I was at that time. Sergeant First Class Haley will be in the turret in the trail vehicle. I will be in the lead vehicle with Captain N in the trail vehicle. The cargo trucks will be center. We have some good weather today, but intelligence reports say that the natives are restless. Expect anything, particularly when we are going through steep terrain. Remember the rules of engagement. Keep other vehicles back away from us as much as possible, Sergeant Haley. Wave, point, and fire a warning shot if necessary. Any questions? Everyone sort of looked at the ground. Then we looked at each other. Nobody had questions. We all knew what to do. It was not our first rodeo. I seemed to be the celebrity at that moment with the convoy commander mentioning me by name to all the others there. What was there to being in the trail vehicle that caused this kind of notoriety? Rules of engagement? I thought they were clear to me that it was shoot only if fired upon. It seemed to me he was saying to shoot if a vehicle got too close. I shook my head as if I were trying to clear the confusion like shaking a rug on my back porch. They all seemed overly paranoid in my opinion. I soon came to know why. I was not a fan of going on convoys. I had been on a few of them already and even as a truck commander, sitting in the front right seat, there was one sergeant among our detachment who went on nearly every convoy that left the Alamo. It was not like he had a job doing something more important. Not all of us were drill sergeants in the group. He was Sergeant First Class Hawaiian. His job was in operations and planning support, but he did more for us as a team than really doing anything related to operations and planning. He did a good job for us overall. Get in the Humvee, Yassine. I motioned for him to climb in behind the TC's seat. We were one person short in the truck. They usually rode out with five soldiers, so we had plenty of headsets to go around. I gave one to Yassine as I climbed into the turret to stand. I'm not sure why this Humvee had it, but it had a pig for the turret gun. It was an old 240 Bravo, the descendant of an M60 machine gun. It fired 7.62 millimeter rounds. It could tear up anything in its line of fire. It was really much to my relief as well having had lots of experience on this beast. I was more confident that I could hit my target with it than the monstrous M2, also known as the 50 caliber Browning machine gun. The bigger machine gun kicked like a mule, but it could easily penetrate the armor of older Soviet-era vehicles. It was not the weapon of choice for a Humvee in Afghanistan. The Taliban did not have any armored vehicles. They drove around in light-skinned trucks like the Ford Rangers we drove around in at Kabul Military Training Center, KMTC. I found only two boxes of ammo sitting next to the weapon with one of them already open. We drove out of the gate and went red. I pulled the charging handle to the rear, loaded the belt on the feed tray, and closed the feed tray cover. With the selector button set to safe, all I had to do was push it, squeeze the trigger, and let the machine gun do the rest. I still had two other firearms, so I loaded rounds in both of those. I kept my M4 close to me in the turret, and my 9mm pistol was in its holster on my belt. Loading a pig was a little different from loading a squad automatic weapon, saw... We loaded the saw with the bolt forward. This was the one advantage that Soviet-made machine guns had over American ones. There was never this confusion about which one was supposed to be loaded which way. There was no difference in loading procedure. Of course, they did not fire very well in the cold, like ours did. During the winter, I watched the Afghan drill sergeants struggling on a range to get one of their PKMs to fire in a freezing winter storm. I told them to put some oil on it. They dumped some oil into the breech of the weapon straight out of a can of oil they kept for one of their leaky old trucks. That thing smoked like it was on fire after just a few seconds. It was not the kind of oil I was talking about. I went over to one of the other machine guns and put a few drops of oil on the mechanism from a small bottle of Break Free I kept in one of my grenade pouches. I never got issued a grenade, so the pouch came in handy for that purpose. The machine gun fired, and it was a small and amazing moment for all of them to see how a few drops of magic stuff could make it all work just fine. I was going to need a little magic stuff on this trip, but not that kind. It was something else, much greater than simple magic or gun oil. It was going to be something magical happen on this trip. We drove through parts of Kabul I had never seen. I'd gone on a convoy with the CSM into downtown on a trip to the presidential palace. 
I never saw Hamid Karzai, but he was there at that time. There was some big meeting going on at the Ministry of Defense, so we were along for the ride as security. That trip was crazy, because we did it in the Ford Rangers and because we drove like we were in Humvees. Initially, we drove the light-skinned vehicles called LTVs for short trips between the Alamo and Phoenix and on that one occasion into downtown. That all came to an end when commands changed in Kabul. New commanders and units always meant new rules. There had been an incident between Americans and local authorities in Kabul. They thought we were Taliban and we thought they were Taliban. I had heard the rumor that someone fired a few shots at them, but I cannot be sure. I actually went out to get on the convoy to Phoenix that morning. It happened. I stood there in the open area between huts looking at the convoy getting ready to depart. I had the strangest feeling about it. It was a kind of deja vu sort of feeling, so I changed my mind. It was just smart not to allow those LTVs to be driven on the roads anymore. Friendlies in Afghanistan were not always identifiable since both Taliban and local police or ANA vehicles look very much the same. I saw some pretty amazing sights from the turret in that Humvee. I saw a small child, barely able to walk, standing next to the road as we roared along. He was so close that he was merely inches away from the edges of the road, and he disappeared in the dust cloud our vehicles made. I breathed a sigh of relief when I saw him waddling back toward his father, who was laboriously working in what looked to me to be a rice paddy. Rice was a stable grain in Afghanistan, and there were small patches of it growing everywhere along the road to Gardez. That little boy's daddy was working in the field, and he was not minding the location of the child. He never even looked up. We had already seen plenty of children roaming around the downrange area of KMTC. The entire place was an impact area, where trainees fired live ammunition into a berm or other area where the rounds could not go as far as they really can. We fired plenty of ammunition at the mountain, from the ranges spread all around its base. Mortar and artillery rangers were farther to the north on the back side of the gar. Pashtu for mountain, and it was the biggest mountain in downrange KMTC. In the course of doing our jobs, we drove those LTVs all over the downrange area at KMTC. We drove down the road along the stirring of firing ranges. If we stopped or turned on a blind corner, children came out of nowhere and surrounded our vehicle. They all ran down to the road from the safety of their little hiding places among the rocks when they saw us coming. They stood there on the edge of the road and in the ditch holding out their hands. It had been a big mistake made by some other kind-hearted soldiers who stopped and gave away candy. These little tykes stormed the vehicle like little mindless zombies holding out their hands to ask for candy. I remember taking an alternate route to the back side of the guard and rear gate to Policharki. There was one site there I will never forget. An old, dilapidated two-story house stood at the bend in the road. Next to that wreck was a humongous pile of trash. As we got closer to this dump, little boys and girls sprang up out of that pile of refuse and ran toward us with their hands out. The near misses were many and new rules were necessary. Giving candy to the children out in the impact area on KMTC was no longer a thing of kindness. It drew them out to us like flies, and our trucks were like flies waters. The children were filthy little critters, too. None of them could have been much older than seven, and they probably never had a bath in their entire lives. They wore mostly rags and tattered clothing, and the smaller, younger ones wore barely anything at all. It was absolutely the most heartbreaking thing to see, but candy was not going to fix it. A good hot bath and some clean clothes that fit, followed by a swift kick on the backside of the parents who let them roam wild in the desert. Might have done some good. This was the culture of Afghanistan. It was all based on the concept of Inshallah. All things were left to be what they were as God willed it. The sense of it all and how deep it ran in the minds of these people were completely perplexing. Parents let their kids roam around in the desert area where we fired live ammunition without any fear at all. If one got run over or killed by a bullet, it was God's will. Inshallah. It was the catch-all word to excuse any failing or explain anything that just was not right. I learned to use it to my advantage.
There were many other sights that surprised me as we drove on through the metropolitan area of Kabul. It was the south side like no other south side. Throngs of people aimlessly walking around narrow streets, they did not seem to have anything better to do, except what they were doing at that moment. I saw swarms of flies buzzing around a chunk of some animal carcass hanging off the beam of an overhang in the front of a small shop. I could smell the rancid meat from the turret, too. It was going to be dinner for someone thankfully not me. As we cleared the busy streets and drove out into wide open territory, I saw several mud wall compounds surrounding a house in the middle. The houses were all mud brick too, except the ornate doors. They all seemed to have excessively large and ornately colored or painted double doors in the front of the houses. The walls that surrounded them also had large double gates. Some of them had dusty old Toyota Corollas parked in front of the gates. I watched the buildings and structures of Kabul disappear behind us on the horizon and the air became much fresher to breathe as we drove further south toward Pakistan. Before I knew it, we were approaching an area of steep mountains and deep ravines. On the left of the road was a mountainside that went nearly straight up for as far as I could see. On the right of the road was a ravine that was as deep as it was wide. I saw the bottom of it, and that there was a small river flowing through the middle of it. I saw someone walking along the banks of this river with a large pile of firewood on his back. It may have been a woman. I could not really tell. The figure was as small as an ant from where I stood in the turret of that umbee. It struck me as odd that the person was carrying a bundle of wood when there was not a tree in sight. It was all rock, dust, dirt, and sparse areas of weeds. The road became steeper, the engine whined from the strain of the incline, and the added weight of the thick layers of steel all around the truck. The large, fully surrounding heavy steel plating of the turret probably weighed a ton by itself. Up to this point, the traffic on the road had been pretty light. Vehicles that began to follow us stayed a good distance back from us as I waved my hand, motioning them to stay back, and even pointed the muzzle of the gun toward them if they did not understand my meaning initially. There was no mistaking that message. It needed no words. It was getting harder for the trucks to get up this hill, and we were slowing significantly. I gathered at that moment that this was the usual, and this might just be the place previously mentioned. With a steep cliff rising up out of sight to the left and a deep ravine to the right that seemed to have no bottom, we were in a kill zone, for sure. It was like one of those situations often shown in old movies where the Native Americans chased the wagon train of settlers into a box canyon. That was a bad day for the settlers. It could be a bad day for us. I saw a vehicle weaving around the other cars that were following at a good distance from us. Traffic behind us was slowing also. In the distance, an LTV was passing other vehicles and approaching our convoy. Sir, I got a camouflage-painted LTV coming up on us pretty fast, I said into my microphone, leaving the comm switch on. I was not on the radio, so my hot mic was not going to interfere with other comms. I hunkered down behind the butt of that 240 Bravo, quickly checking the ammo in the box to make sure it was loose enough that the belt did not get caught on the edge of the can in case I had to wrap a few rounds. Stand by. What kind of response was that? He began relaying the information up to the lead vehicle. Wave them to stay back, Sergeant Haley. I have, sir. They aren't yielding. I was saying that, not really too excited when I spoke. Honestly, my heart was racing and it was hard to hide the emotion of the moment. Is your weapon loaded? I did not expect that question, but the two of us had never met before, and I had never worked with him until this convoy. Yes, sir. Locked, cocked, and ready to rock. That statement might seem a bit cliche, but that was how we talked. Take your weapon off safe, Sergeant. He said that so calmly that I was a bit steadier. This was how it was going to go down. He was going to make the call. All he had to say was squeeze it, and this beast was going to spit fire and lead all over the place. Sir, I think this might be some A&A. I could see the vehicle and the markings on its door now. They were getting really close. I tried to wave them back again, but I 
was a little less aggressive by not pointing the muzzle of the machine gun at them. I could see a group of soldiers piled into the back of the truck. They all had Kalashnikov rifles, and there was a PKM on a pipe stand in the middle. The gunner pointed it down and to the left as the LTV continued to get closer. Are you sure, Sergeant? The TC asked, and I confirmed. He quickly radioed up to the lead command vehicle, and the response came back. We pulled over and let them pass. We pulled as much to the right as we reasonably could, and a light rain began to fall. It was just enough to mix with the dust on the surfaces of the Humvee, which was looking like some kind of brown-on-brown Dalmatian. The captain in the lead vehicle was fuming that I had not fired on them, but they were just members of the Afghan National Army. I could tell by their uniforms and the vehicle's markings. We had allies in country, or did we? We were moving at a crawl, not wanting to actually stop for concern that we might not get these trucks moving again on this steep grade. The TC and the ANA vehicle gave us a weak salute when the LTV and its squad of ANA soldiers recklessly sped past our convoy. The troops in the back held their weapons, muzzles pointing down, which is clearly a non-threatening posture. I kept my turret pointed to the rear with one hand on my M4, which I had stowed in the open area of the turret. Out here, we never really knew for sure who was whom. If they do not shoot first, then they were most likely the good guys. Even if they fired first, they might still be the good guys. I believe that anyone who shot at me first was most definitely a bad guy. The ANA truck finally roared past the lead convoy vehicle and we got the word to continue. The rain suddenly stopped as we rounded a turn in the road, which opened up to the most amazing sight I'd ever seen. In the distance ahead, I saw a bridge that crossed the source of the water in the ravine. Much higher up above the bridge was a waterfall. The water flowed off the edge of an escarpment and splashed on the rocks below so that the huge plumes of spray rose upward. Above all this was a rainbow. It stretched across the river at the top and disappeared among the rocky edges on both ends. I motioned to Yassine to look up ahead as I turned back to the rear trying to wave back the civilian vehicles that were becoming increasingly impatient and aggressive, especially after watching the ANA pass us. Let one guy go by and the rest want to do the same. It was not going to be like that. I did not have to shoot to kill. I could fire some rounds into the engine block and settle it very quickly without hurting anyone. My only concern was that I had never fired this particular weapon before and did not zero the sights. It was going to be a spray and pray if I had to shoot it. While it might seem to some who are reading this that I was not a religious man, the truth is that I was, and deeply so. I used profanity from time to time, but I was not a saint. Cursing did not mean that I did not believe. God sent a sign to Noah that he would no longer destroy the world with a deluge of water, as that story goes by having a rainbow in the sky. While we can easily explain the cause of a rainbow as light refracted through a prism, that being the water mist from the falls in this case, I took it as a sign from God that he was watching over me. Something good was going to happen in Gardez. I just did not know what it was at that time. We crossed that bridge and the air felt great. It was moist and cool. I was getting pretty tired and the sun had beat on me all day long. Dusk was getting closer and the sun was beginning to set behind the mountains. We rolled into Camp Lightning just in time. Taking the dirt road off the main road was actually the worst part of the whole trip. There were several large mud holes on this rutted out road that cut off from the paved road which kept going on until it went into Pakistan. This short bit of massive pothole infested road was the access road into the FOB situated on the west side of the ANA post which had the same name as the city. The Humvee bobbed up and down violently as the driver did his best to negotiate this obstacle course but I was still like a rag doll flopping around in the turret. I looked up to the west where the sun's disappearance behind the mountains cast eerie slow-moving shadows on the city of Gardez. I saw hundreds, maybe thousands, of mud-brick huts randomly scattered all up and down the slope of the mountain range on both sides of the highway, 
were as far as I could see in that dim light. I dismounted the vehicle and got my gear off the truck with Yasin following closely. There was a short after-action review and post-convoy operations briefing. All gathered around as the captain began to speak. Good work, everyone, he said. He looked pretty tired, too. I've never said this before, but this was the first convoy I have been on since I have been here that nobody fired a shot. The trail vehicle personnel did a good job. Sending that intel forward the way he did made that one of the best trips I've made between Phoenix and Lightning. Balls of steel. That last part was their battle cry or motto. He actually seemed mad that I had not fired at the ANA initially, but I was not paranoid like they were. Afghanistan was not dangerous. As I stood in the open gravel-covered area inside of Camp Lightning, surrounded by buildings made of plywood, I watched the last light of the sun as it dropped below the mountains and cast an incredible aura in the sky. My mind raced with so many thoughts of what life was going to be like for me during my stay in Gardez. How did I get here? How did this all begin? All right, well, that concludes the first chapter of Debt 25, A Soldier's Story. The next chapter tells about how the mission began, so listeners will need to buy the book to get more of this story. The book does not have photographs, but I have put many photographs and videos on the Debt 25 website. I frequently add new pictures and videos so readers and fans can check in often to see new information. Please go to www.https colon slash slash mikehaley77.wixsite.com slash debt25 to read more about the book, browse the photographs, and read about other works by myself and my associated authors. Once again, the website is www.https colon slash slash mikehaley77.wixsite.com slash debt25. Thanks for listening. Oh!